Hello, my name is Matthew Kidman and welcome to the latest episode of Success and More Interesting Stuff. Paul Zaratis has been swimming against the tide for most of his life. Born to Greek immigrants, Zaratis, universally known as X, did not have a rails run on the way to success. There was no private schooling. And early in his working life, he was inside the Bank of Wales, wondering where his career would head. Zaratis identified an opportunity to migrate towards asset management within the bank and managed to score an assistance job to Mike Wilson. Many years later, Wilson would become one of Zaratis' partners at Osbell Investment Management. After his stint at Westpac, Zaratis served his funds management apprenticeship at Legal and General and BZW Investment Management before making the big move to strike out on his own. This involved the formation of Ausbill in 1997 with a group of partners, including Wilson, Rube Hayes and Winston Summit. The Aussie troop found a backer in the Bank International Luxembourg. Ausbill has changed a lot over the years, with the original partners either retiring or moving to greener pastures. Zaratis, though, has been a mainstay developing an equity manager powerhouse that today has assets under management of more than $15 billion. Investors in Ausbill have been rewarded handsomely, with the main fund delivering 3% outperformance per annum over a quarter of a century. This is remarkable at a time when professional institutional investors have been steering away from long-only active funds because supposedly they can't outperform passive investment vehicles. Welcome, Paul. Great to be here. Happy birthday, 25 years. Did you think about that in 1997? No, I didn't actually. I mean, it's, um, you know, I thought that uh, at that time it'd be great to set up this business and um, work pretty hard and have a plan to uh, on-sell the business to, uh, to our partners at a point in time. But that's never eventuated, and, I, and that's the furthest thing from my thought. Well, the, the partners have changed hands a few times, and you've stuck at it. It's worked the other way around. Yeah, well, that is true. I mean, we've really had two partners over the years. I mean, BIL was a, was a great partner with us uh, from, the, from the very beginning. You know, they provide the, uh, the necessary platform for us and also the backing uh, and some seating for us. So, so that was great, and they were a fantastic partner for many, many years. They were a powerhouse in Europe and also very highly rated, but the global financial crisis hit, uh, things changed quite dramatically, and then all of a sudden they were government-owned and uh, they were looking to unwind the operation or their banking operation. And then comes along New York Life, which has been a fantastic partner for us. And we'll get back to it later in the chat, but I gather they have let you get on with what you do best, which is managing money in Australia. Yeah, that's very much the case. I mean, I was part of the selection committee in um, identifying uh, p- partners to take over from Dexia at the time, and New York Life was definitely one of those. There was a set of criteria that we established, as in I established, and also passed it on to Dexia, to saying this is what I would like as a partner. Um, and part of that was to very much leave us alone for us to run our own destiny, you know, maintain our culture, which is a boutique culture, but also for them to bring something to the party, which was uh, seed capital and also um, inbound and outbound opportunities for us to distribute our products. So they've uh, really fulfilled in that regard. It's been a fantastic journey for us. Yeah, you don't hear much of that in funds management. Normally partnerships end up failing at some stage or they don't work. But yours, yours has proven to buck the trend. Which yeah, is look, terrific. it's been it's been great. I think the the real the reality is that uh, from from my perspective is maintaining a really good relationship at the highest level. I think that's important. Being open and truthful, I think, and for them, vice versa. I think that's always helpful. So I think having a really strong relationship at that high end uh, certainly makes a big difference. And you just been to New York? Yes. And I gather they're pretty happy with the way things are going. Yeah, they are. I mean, we, we're really their model, if you like, in the sense of all the boutiques that they have interest in. Um, you know, we've delivered for them and, and they haven't had uh, any, any issues from our perspective or from their perspective back to us. And uh, so it's been a great uh, relationship and that continues. But equally, you know, they brought a few other things to the party, which I think is good. Um, you know, one of the areas which is um, really, you know, an issue going forward is cybersecurity and, mm-hmm. and they excel in that regard. So drawing on their expertise has been fantastic as well. 
All right. Like what we like to do in this show is to go back sure. to success and more interesting stuff. And sometimes the more interesting stuff is what happened before you became a fund manager. And in the intro, you heard, well, my intro, son of, of Greek immigrants. Do you, do you want to give us a bit of a fill on your parents and where they came from and sure. why they came to Australia? Yeah, look, it's uh, two halves, really. Mum um, uh, immigrated from Greece. Uh, that was back in 1952. Um, she was 16 or 17 at that time. Um, she came out with her sister, um, her elder sister, Sophia. Um, unfortunately, she lost her mother and a younger sister during the war because of, a, you know, from a shipwreck and they both drowned. So she was, um, you know, young and, and obviously excited about coming here with, uh, with her, with her elder sister, who was really her mother, motherly figure. Dad, he was actually born here. Um, okay. so, I mean, my grandfather or his dad, um, immigrated to, uh, to Cairns in and spent most of his uh, time in Mossman Cairns in, in the early days. Uh, he immigrated here about 1925. He was quite an entrepreneur, that they say, um, in the sense that he had boarding houses, milk bar, fish shops, uh, cafes, or the Mossman Cafe, and also the Cairns Cafe. Um, so he was quite uh, eventful at that time in the sense of working hard for his family. But, um, but again, uh, a tragedy during the war that, um, you know, the, very close to the Coral Seas, the uh, that land that they occupied or they, they had was actually occupied by the military in order to uh, protect Australia. So they moved down to uh, from Cairns to Sydney. So he, he would have been a bit of a loner in those days. There wouldn't have yeah, been a was. big Greek community, especially no. in that part of the world. No, he a, was. He a was a pioneer. Yeah, he was alone in that regard. Um, and I and I guess that um, I was quite surprised. And you know, when I when I was looking into um, and trying to get the reasons behind him coming here, um, there wasn't too much written about it. All and and mum and dad didn't say, or dad didn't say too much about it. But uh, but but they do remember that um, he was hardworking, and they had a really uh, joyful uh, youth at that time. And going back to your grandfather on that side and your mother, both from islands in Greece. Yes, uh, my mum's from um, spent most of her life uh, in Rhodes, um, but she was born in Kos, and my grandfather he was born in Limnos, which is an island very close to Turkey. Right, and so that entrepreneurial spirit sounds like it might have come from your dad's side. He did a few different things at the time. Uh, yeah, look, I think that's the case because um, dad was, you know, very similar in the sense that he was always in businesses, you know, looking to, um, you know, provide well for the family. But it was never easy. You know, we're a family of five in the sense of I've got two brothers, two sisters. My mum. Where do dad, you sit? I'm, I'm the eldest son. A lot of responsibility. There was a lot of responsibility. And, and even in those days, um, you know, I, I remember doing things which I was quite surprised about because things were pretty tough in those days in the sense of interest rates being high, economy being a bit indifferent, and they were fairly heavily indebted at the time. Uh, so while they're running good businesses, you know, I, I had to go out and um, do some chores for mum and dad and also negotiate some outcomes um, in uh, for, for the family as well, which was interesting. Good training. Mm. So just, just before we leave the Greek background, normally- Greek boys are named after someone in the family. Their grandfather, is that right? Yeah, that, that, so you, that you is had a, a Paul? Yeah, that is the case. And how, how does that translate? What is Paul? And Bavlos is uh, the Greek uh, translation, but uh, my grandfather was Paul. So, um, uh, And my, my son, Nick, he's, uh, he's got my father's name as well. Right. And did you get to speak Greek at home, given your mum- Growing up there, yeah, I mean, not as well as uh, we did, um, but like all things, you know, we we're trying to they trying to climatize, or Mum was trying to climatize and get used to living the Australian way. So um, in her first day, she that's all she spoke. And when I was born, Mum obviously was spending a lot of time with me, and I spoke Greek at a very young age. But when I went to school, that, apparently that's what I could speak was uh, was Greek. So it took me a little while to um, uh, to learn the English language. But um, and then I once I master the English language in the sense that school, I stopped speaking Greek, actually, so that's a bit of a shame from my end. I still understand speak Greek, but not as fluently as I should. 
Very good. And so was just given your dad's background and he was doing small businesses, was that the conversation at home? Did you talk about what was profitable, this would sell, that wouldn't work, this cost too much and so on? Yeah, it was that way. I mean, I um, I worked very closely with Dad, and that was through necessity, you know, for, uh, because of necessity. So I spent a lot of time with Dad going to markets, buying, and that was interesting as well. I mean, going to the first time I remember firstly, first time I went to the fish markets. That was a, that was really uh, really exciting from my perspective. Didn't know what was going on. Still the same places where they are now in Pimmer. Uh, not far from there. They've relocated, but around that area. That's yep. right. But um, but it was a Dutch auction, and I hadn't realised what it was at the time, and uh, and that was quite fascinating. But yes, yeah, so I think that um, certainly with uh, with me with with mum and dad, I spent a lot of time when I was when I was younger with them. Most times after school and weekends was with them in helping them out in the sh- in the in the businesses. And so, did you know at that point you were going to go into business for yourself? Look, I I wanted to, I've always wanted to go into business for myself. Didn't know what it was at the time. I, you know, it always fascinated me. But I also did recognise that the you know seven days a week and the long hours that mum and dad uh, put in, um, you know, they didn't really get the true benefits of all that. Um, it was really hard work, a strain on the family, um, and and I obviously helped out. But it was it was pretty tough times in those times. And did the share market come into the conversation? Most migrant families tend to like property. Yeah, I think that's- And a lot of Australians do, but especially the migrant families, because I, I gather it, it gives them a sense of security that it's home, that they've got something to hold on to because they've traveled a long way to live in a new place. Property was always center of our discussion. Dad always you know, said that you know, you should uh, buy an investment property as, as soon as you can. Never rent. I mean, that was what, one of the things he always <laughs> said. He says it's a waste of time. And he always used to say that, you know, with every payment, at least, you know, you're paying off a brick each week rather than actually paying someone else. So therefore, if you're going to get into property, you know, you should be the owner uh, and get, and rent the uh, property out. So that was part of it. So I, I did actually buy my first property when I was about 22 or 23. So uh, I bought a, bought a house before I got married, which was unusual uh, at that time. But, um, but that, that was the influence from mum and dad. But no, share markets wasn't really talked about. It was more about property and businesses. And take us to school or where you grew up. So you grew up in Sydney. Yep. Which suburb? I was brought up in Bankstown. Dad had a had a fish shop uh, at Bankstown, Bankstown Seafood. So my first school was uh, Bankstown Primary. Um, in uh, later years, uh, he sold that um, and went to uh, Naguna, which is another suburb not far from Bankstown. And we moved to Bass Hill. So Dad had Naguna Fish Shop for, for many years and I, and I went to uh, Bass Hill Primary. And in my high school years, I went to Beer on Boys. Right. Okay. Southwest Sydney. Yes. And um, was that a good environment or was it tough? I mean, you yeah, look, the name like Zaratus doesn't roll off the tongue for, my, for most Aussie kids in those days. It was tough, um, but, you know, you just got on with it. I mean, um, you know, I think uh, nowadays people can be very sensitive about their backgrounds and also um, uh, take offence to it. You know, the way that, you know, mum and dad, um, particularly dad, was saying, you know, just be proud of your background and, and don't react to it. Um, and then they'll stop stop um, teasing you about it and actually, you know, calling you uh, names. So, uh, you know, being referred to as a wog was, was very much part of that. But, you know, when you didn't react and, and were part of them, uh, everyone facilitated and uh, coexisted. Good learning school there. And, and the, the nickname X, which we all know you in as the markets, it was, was it there at Biron in those days? No, not quite. Um, I think I had a few other nicknames, which I can't recall um, or don't want to share. <laughs> but X was really, um, you know, birthed here in, um, uh, when I came to the markets, I guess, that uh, everyone had struggled uh, pronouncing my name. So, so X was, uh, was the word that was used or the initial that, or the uh, word that was used in the sense of describing and giving me a nickname. So that's just stuck ever since. Well, it, it's easy to say. It is. But when you read it, you're not quite sure yeah, that's, what the 
right pronunciation is, so I think that's where they got confused. But it's worked out quite well. It's a it's it's a terrific nickname. So let's roll into working life. What happened there and what were you thinking? You left school. Were you good at school? I was an okay student. I wouldn't say I was outstanding, but equally I didn't have a lot, a lot of time to devote to studies either because as I was saying that, you know, really helping out the family and the businesses most afternoons and, and weekends, in fact, all weekends were really helping the family. So when I left school, it was uh, an opportunity for me to um, to really excel and actually work uh, for, my, uh, for myself in the sense of achieving my end results. And I remember Again, Dad's saying that, you know, if you, no matter what you undertake, make sure you, you work hard at it and be the best at it that you possibly can be. So that's always been my attitude. So, and certainly, you know, I, want, I wanted to get into finance in some way, shape or form. Wasn't sure how to get into finance and banking was, was an avenue. So I joined uh, Bank of New South Wales at the time, um, and that was interesting. Uh, you know, I worked pretty hard at it, and I was rated pretty highly. Was was that at a branch level or head office? Yeah, no, it was branch level. I, my first branch was at uh, Punchbowl. Was right, punch still on the southwest? Yeah, still in the southwest. <laughs> um, and then uh, my second branch uh, location was Bankstown. So uh, I was first till at Bankstown before I came into the city uh, and into the investment division. It's a pretty modest type of start compared to what people have got to go through today, but a good learning experience once again, because you would have worked all those type of jobs within a branch, I would have thought. Yeah, I worked in quite a few different areas, um, you know, clearly in, in, in marketing, if you like, in the sense of selling products, and understanding products, but also answering the needs of, uh, of the client base. You know, banking was completely different in those days. It was really, you know, the personal touch and people really coming in for advice. Nowadays, it's all done electronically and, you know, that personal contact is not there. Um, and it really well, it used just, to be, I remember my parents, you had a relationship with your banker and that was as important as just about any relationship you could have. Uh, one of the most- your local banker. One of the most important, uh, I would say, particularly for small businesses. I mean, having that relationship with the bank was very important because they could shut you down rather quickly and also just having, you know, that honest discussion with the bank uh, at the time was something that uh, small businesses had to do because they get into trouble at times. Uh, but that doesn't exist, you know- uh, to the same extent as it did then, as it did then, yes. And so you, somewhere along the line, and, and we said in the intro, you, you you worked out asset management. How did that come about? Because you're obviously thinking about finance, where is this going to lead? And But you're working within the bank. Just just maybe give us a bridge to where sure. coming out of a branch in the southwest of Sydney, end up working in the asset management department, which I imagine was in downtown CBD. Yeah, it was. It was um, at uh, 66 Pitt Street was the, uh, was the location Was the, uh, when I first came to the city. So how did it all come about? I, I, as I said, I worked pretty hard um, and, and I think I excelled in, in the bank, the general banking. And I was um, highlighted or um, often spoken to by senior, senior management and also uh, general managers, which came out and visited uh, some high achievers about you know, saying where they wanted, what they wanted to achieve with their careers and where they wanted to go. I mean, certainly I had one of those discussions with the general manager uh, at the time. I can't recall his name, but but again, I was pretty bold at the time and uh, and suggested that uh, this is a guy that was in the bank for 35 years, worked up through the ranks. And I said, you know, in five years' time, I, I want your job. And he said, well, you know, you've got to work at it. And I said, well, is there anywhere else you would like to work? And I thought treasury would be an interesting part of the bank and or investments. So, um, and it was very soon after I got transferred to the investment division. But how did you know about investments? Again, it was from my, my, my training at, at in, in general banking. So we had uh, a series of training in selling some equity income products right. at that time. Uh, and they always fascinated me and I didn't really quite understand. So I, I spent a bit of time understanding them. So I said, oh, this, this could be quite interesting. And I just want to understand a little bit more about that. But clearly investments was uh, something that we've talked about as a family, but not necessarily equity investments, but investments generally. And certainly there's something that uh, appealed to me. And so then you went over to asset management. Is that what it was called then? What, what yeah, it was they- called 
called Westpac Investment Management. And who was there? Mike Wilson was there? Yeah, Mike Wilson was there. Brian um, Sherman? Brian Sherman, that's right. Brendan Reardon. Brendan Reardon, it was at Legal in General. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So uh, some uh, some well-known names. And at that time, you know, Westpac Investment Management was one of the bigger investment houses in Australia. I mean, AMP was bigger, National Mutual were bigger. Amongst the uh, the big four banks at the time, or the banks, uh, Westpac Investment Management was one of the leaders, managing a lot of superannuation fund money uh, at that time and also uh, other investment products. So how, I mean, I, I, I was really fortunate when I went to Westpac Investment Division um, because that in those days, which is a little bit different to today, that the investment houses did all the investment in all, in all different asset classes. Yep. So they didn't specialise in just equities. They didn't just specialise in property or fixed interest. They actually were a master of all those. So, uh, so from my perspective, it was great education for me because I spent uh, a number of years in each one of those divisions. And just, just so we've got perspective, late 70s, early 80s? Yeah, it was uh, late, late 70s and early 80s, that's right. So I stayed um, with Westpac Investment Division until 1987. I'll come back to that in a minute. But I was actually mentored and taught by some of the, some of the best of the time. Brian Sherman was, was quite an exceptional uh, investor. Really, you know, taught me about, you know, the psyche of markets and the way that they operate, which I hadn't really uh, appreciated until he spent a fair bit of time with me. He was a, a fixed interest manager and really good at it, but also uh, did exchange traded options in Australia. I mean, uh, Westpac was one of the leading users of exchange traded options when they were introduced. Uh, Mike Wilson. Well, just, uh, just before we uh, leave Brian, he went on to run Equity Link. Yeah, he did. Very yeah. successful. Oh, very successful. Um, debt manager out of Australia. And unfortunately, Brian's left us now, but. He was a terrific guy and, and a highly successful career. And you're right. He raised all that money, debt money effectively, um, which was really the, the cornerstone of Equity Link, which is interesting. But he also was a, a diversified fund manager as well. But that was really part of his, his success. And then I worked with Mike Wilson. Um, you know, I was his assistant for a number of years. When I want to say a number of years, probably a little bit less than two years. But again, that was really the art of portfolio management, understanding equities, um, options as well. Portfolio construction was also part of it. But a great leader that I worked with as well was Brendan Reardon. I mean, he was quite unique, you know, right up there in the sense of um, uh, ability, um, you know, I think ahead of his time in the sense of, you know, the outlook of investment markets. Um, you know, I do recall, you know, sitting in with him when I was a young age, but if I didn't understand something, he spent the time in going through all the logic and the reasons behind it, but also ran uh, the morning meetings and explained, you know, outlooks in ways that uh, perhaps others weren't thinking. So, And a very gentle a soul, if I remember correctly. Yeah, very much so. And a still, lovely man. Yeah, yeah. lovely man. And I was fortunate enough to uh, work with him again at a later stage, but um, but certainly a great a great mentor and a great trainer. And so, were you analysing? Were you dealing? What were the jobs that you the roles you filled in in that period? I, I spent a time in fixed interest, so that was more um, you know portfolio structure dealing and and uh, and putting up an investment case. Worked in investment properties as well uh, for a couple, for about eighteen months with Les Walsh. That was interesting. With um, international equities, more about um, you know reviewing and understanding because uh, well that was very early in those days because uh, there was a bit of an outsourcing, there was an outsourcing model that looking at other international managers. Domestically, it was more, uh, I didn't spend too much time in research, it was more on the dealing side. So, um, and that's the area that really fascinated me. And I was the operator for Osbill, uh, not Osbill, uh, for, for, uh, for Westpac <laughs> Investment Management. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Westpac Investment Management in those days, which I really enjoyed because I really loved and, uh, and loved markets. And you form a lot of relationships in that period, I gather, and, and that also helps because markets 
about information and relationships are very important. Look, very, very true. I mean, you know, reading people, getting information, getting snips of information, formulating a view, you know, formulating your own view. I mean, it's remarkable how you can just get bits of information and put the jigsaw together. And you know when when you've actually, when you've landed it, right? So um, so that little bit of information all the time and actually having that contact with market is important. I mean, getting in different interpretations and making sure that, and that's certainly what I did, was speak to a, a, a different range of people to get different perspectives and that also helped. Well, fast forward to 87. Changed everyone's life, I gather, in markets. Yeah. I was lucky enough to still be at university at that stage. So <laughs> tell me what happened there because it sounds like that's when you left. It turned into Westpac by that stage. Yeah, look, I was at Westpac. I left Westpac in 19, uh, sorry, in 87, but it was in March 87. I was um, joined a group called AFT, Australian Fixed Trust, at the time. Um, it was owned by ANZ, um, and they own a couple of other uh, investment banking operations. But I went there to uh, look after their balance funds. So given my background at Westpac, you know, obviously very focused on equities, but understanding other asset classes and also the interrelationship, I went there to manage their uh, their balance funds, and that went pretty well. Um, but then the crash happened, and you know everything um, you know turned to crap, really, in the sense of those <laughs> two days. It was quite an interesting time, and no one knew you know how to react and what to do. But um, but certainly, um, as it turned out, it was a great opportunity uh, to invest for the future, and uh, that's something that I you know from that very very experience has always stayed with me. That you know, in adversity, there's always opportunities, and things get overdone, and that's certainly been the case back in '87. So what? Did you learn from that? Because it was easy to go out the back door in 87, because I imagine prices just changed overnight. And yeah, so they, you didn't really have time to avert anything if you weren't ready for it. So w- was there a learning curve there? Was it you should always have some firepower ready? You shouldn't be overly stretched? Or what What, what came out of that for you as a reasonably young investment manager? Well, there was firsthand I, I experienced it because, um, you know, within AFT, there was a number of different portfolios which I wasn't responsible for, but there ended up being a couple of managers which, uh, which had to leave. Um, and I was left holding the, the baby, so to speak. But what I did find is that, that, you know, portfolio structure and composition is very important. And one of the things that I also learned was that you really want to be managing the portfolio rather than portfolio managing you. And by what I meant by that is that, you know, if you're forced to sell if they're illiquidity or, or if the, if the quality is not there, I mean, it just ends in disaster. So portfolio structure, quality, um, and liquidity was something that I learned at that, uh, at that time. Uh, certainly my, that was the way that, uh, we operated at Westpac and uh, certainly a, a higher quality and not to be overly exposed to too many penny dreadfuls or small cap stocks because some of these names fell by 90%, you know, during that period. But the quality and really, you know, fell quite dramatically. Um, but then they recovered and recovered quite strongly. And I do recall that, um, I was managing the Delphin superannuation fund and my, and my equity portfolio at the time. I've never been able to achieve it since, but outperformed the benchmark on a 12-month basis by over 30% because it was at the quality and a no and um, and no penny dreadfuls. So that taught me a lesson. Well, don't tell everyone that. They'll expect it in the future. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to keep that quiet. But that oh. was the case. It was really it was really quite pronounced at that time. Well, great learning curve. So the ghosts of 87 stick with you as well. But just to run us through there, you, you went, you had this new job that you learned a lot in that period, but you ended up at Legal and General. Was there a series of jobs before that? There was uh, another job between that time, um, ANZ, you know, soon after, about two years after the crash, uh, they had three operations they amalgamated and I didn't go to Melbourne or wasn't offered to go down to Melbourne or didn't choose to go to Melbourne. One of the, I can't remember 
what it was, but then I landed a position with Mercantile and General Reinsurance. And again, it was more of a diversified position in the sense of being the investment manager, uh, looking after varying different asset classes, but very much equities. Uh, and that was, uh, I was there for three years and I loved every minute of it. Really enjoyed the, um, and the environment. I really enjoyed uh, working for an individual by the name of Stephen France. He was just a real gentleman and really shaped me in a lot of, lot of ways as well. In the sense of being really personal, taught me in a more convincing way about you know, why it's important to have relationships and why you should always make sure that, that you treat everyone with, uh, with, with respect and, um, and that's what he did. So I've always conducted myself that way ever since. And that was interesting, but again, um, like all things, um, there was amalgamation in the industry. Uh, Mercantile and General Reinsurance was owned by Prudential Life Insurance and then that group collapsed um, into, into that group. So I, I had a very brief stay in broking. I don't oh, talk I didn't about, know about that. that one. No, you can tell us so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was interesting. Um, I, you know, I worked for James Capel. I thought I'd try my hand at that just to see what it was like. It was more about you know making sure I stayed in the game and being in contact. I was there for about fifteen months. Didn't enjoy it. Couldn't work out why you know my recommendations weren't acted upon. So uh, that was a bit hard for me to adjust uh, because you know clearly as a fund manager you're in control of those of those uh, of those actions. But when you're selling down a story or, or operating, it's a little bit different. But what ended up happening is that one of my clients, which was then legal in general, um, when I was at James Cable, asked me to join, and uh, and I and I did. Well, you wouldn't be the first fund went on to be a successful fund manager that had a go at breaking and found it wasn't for him or her. Brendan Reardon was he at legal in general then? Yes, he so was. So you reunited with him? Yep, I did. He was the investment manager uh, at the time, so that was a really good uh, again uh, a re- a re-engagement and uh, really worked well with him. But I also worked with Bomb Van Munster at that time, so he was um, you know we were pretty good buddies in the market, and uh, and I was servicing uh, the houses from a broker perspective. I um, mean, we got along pretty well, and he asked me to, to join, which I did, and um, and I wish I really enjoyed. Bob, another terrific guy. He is a great guy. Yep. And so where are we now? We're in the mid-90s, early 90s? Yeah, the mid-90s or the, uh, yeah, mid-90s. So again, it was a pretty interesting time at that time as well, I must say. Uh, You may recall or you may uh, reflect that uh, at that time, there was a lot of investment management groups at the time, particularly just about every life company had their own in-house capability. Also, the big superannuation funds or superannuation funds had their own internal capabilities as well and the banks had all their operations. But the industry was going for a start of a bit of change at that time. Well, compulsory super came in then as well, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's so right. It really flourished in that period. It did. It took a while to get going, but it's, but but it really but the landscape was changing and changing rather quickly. But the life officers, um, you know, while they were dominating the, the investment scene for many years, um, became uh, they amalgamated and consolidated. Um, and today we haven't got any listed life companies, so it's quite in, quite interesting what's happened over the years. And also the banks themselves have had their own investment operations, and today we haven't. So over the years we did see specialisation um, in asset classes, and that certainly took us to Osbill, but um, and that's what Osbill ended up doing. But um, but it was changing and changing quite dramatically. But legal in general was one of those groups which was targeted. I think in in the sense of uh, being amalgamated. I think it was bought again by Prudential. So there was an opportunity, uh, and I felt a bit uneasy about the, the industry at the time. And then Mike Wilson and, and uh, Rube Hayes contacted me and said, um, we need some help. Can you come over? So, Is it BZW? Uh, at BZW. And so you rekindled that relationship then. Yeah, So relationships true. are coming into it. So you formed up a team with them. But that's where I remember first hearing about you at BZW. But then did, were you thinking at that stage, 
we want to do something on our own rather than under the banner of a, a big international group like BZW? No, not at the time. Um, I mean, that came um, not soon after, um, not too soon after, but but I did join at that time. BZW was, was quite a strong investment powerhouse, you know, investing in, in varying different asset classes like a diversified fund manager and growing quite strongly. But what did happen, uh, you know, quite you know, maybe 18 months later after I joined, there was a, effectively a reverse takeover in the sense that Barclays made an acquisition um, of Wells Fargo Investment Management. So Barclays out of the UK? Barclays out of the UK bought Wells Fargo's business, which was a, a quant house. So effectively, you know, the view was that uh, in Australia that Barclays would run a an active business and also a quant business, you know, through the amalgamation. But as it turned out, the active business was pushed to one side. This is after about 18 months after the acquisition or thereabouts, if my, my dates serve me correctly, and then became Barclays Global Investors, which ended up being uh, just a, a straight quant house. Right. So you became marginalised. So we became marginalised. So therefore, and Rube Hayes was the CEO of that group uh, at the time. Um, so he left the organisation, and then an opportunity came uh, later to uh, to to start up Ausbuild, uh, which uh, which I was part of. So before we get on to Ausbuild, the way you manage money, you talked a bit about your portfolio construction earlier, coming off the back of the '87 crash and what yep. it taught you. Had you formed your methodology by the time Ausbuild started? And you've stuck with that methodology over the years? Very much so. So I think that if you, if I think about my experiences, um, you know, Westpac was really disciplined and high level and obviously, you know, very research driven. Kuti was important. Uh, so that, that, as I said, I'd learned a, a very valuable lesson when I went to AFT. Um, so important, as I said, that you need to be managing the portfolio rather than the portfolio managing you. So that stuck with me. Um, then when I went to Mercantile in general, because I did have reinsurance clients that I was managing money for when I was at Delphin AFT, that's what the group was called. You know, one of the requirements there was to, you know, manage the portfolio in such a way where there's always liquidity mm -hmm. and one where you thought you can always, in absolute terms, make money. So a bit of an absolute focus rather than a relative. That sounds dangerous. Yeah, true. Um, but we, but I managed to uh, do very well for the organisation, and part of it was was really focusing on you know what drives share prices. You know, at the end of the day, and it was um, you know again the observation, and also in practice, it was pretty clear that you know earnings are, are, are the key driver, um, yep. and so developing that as the uh, the start point. That you know what is the earnings outlook for a particular company? What's going to be driving those earnings, and what's what's the future? look like was something that, that I really focused on. Uh, so but, earnings but and earnings change. Earnings and earnings divisions are the key driver of share prices. That's what we say at Osbell. And it was really brought out of uh, a mercantile in general. It sounds strange today because we would all say that earnings are important. But if you go back to the late 80s, early 90s kind of era where you were learning your trade, that wasn't always the case? Oh, look, I think, the, again, the observation was clear that, um, but perhaps wasn't really focused upon uh, by the market. I mean, the people it, it looked at valuation. It was obvious to me. Created, yeah, correct. I mean, but, I, but not everyone followed that no, I don't way think of doing so. things. No, I don't think so. But again, if you look at you know, some of the recommendations and also the analysis that you came up with that in, in a determining you know, why a company should, uh, should improve from you, it was always driven on growth and growth in earnings. So, um, so that was always uh, a firm belief of mine. And that was a big step then in 1997 to go and form Ausbuilt. With, with your yeah, partners look, that went with you, you're taking risk then because you're out of the corporate world, even though you found a big partner, obviously, but your reputation and your financial situation's on the line. Well, yeah, it was. It was Again, it was pretty tough times at the time. Uh, as I said, the industry was going through a fair bit of change. Um, it was uh, rapidly, uh, you know, working towards specialisation. But again, you know, in setting up the operation, there was an opportunity for us to do so. But, but there was also a lot of risk money as well. 
you know, it, was, it wasn't an easy decision to, uh, to set it up. I mean, you know, I thought about it. Um, I thought it was a really good opportunity, but I really had to put hard cash in. And, you know, I was still, I had three kids at the time, had to remortgage the house. So it was a big decision to do so. But um, well, a few, few tough conversations at home. Look, it was. You better get it, this right. <laughs> yeah, well, it was, but I must say, um, you know, my wife Eva, she was, she was fantastic. You know, she said that, you know, if that's what you think we should do, and there's an opportunity, you should do it. And you know, we had those conversations, and and I said, look, I'll be working hard at the business, and perhaps won't be be able to spend enough time with the kids in doing so. She said, don't you worry about that. I'll I'll take care of that, and just make sure it works. So uh, that was my wife's influence. Very, to Osbill. very strong opinion. Very strong lady so. by the sounds. Yeah, of it. she is actually. Right. So um, then you set off with your partners, you get going. Any money that came across with you in the first instance or was day one at the office, well, what have we got to manage? Where's that money going to yeah, come from? Yeah, I mean, from? the day one at the office, we had zero fund under management. Um, we won our first client about a month. So there were no promises. There were no conversations behind saying, if we did this, would there be any support? There was some loose conversations and also promises, but you know, like all things, it's not there until it's actually delivered. And we did have um, you know, capital uh, from Dexter at the time, or, or BIL rather, to provide some seed capital, which did come about three or four months after. And they did also establish a, a CCAB fund or a, an equity fund, uh, which was listed in operated in, in, in Europe, which actually was quite successful, which we managed the Australian sleeve of. But the thing is, but that was a few months later. We did uh, win our first client about one month late, uh, after operation. I was a high net worth individual, which I had an association with and, and gave us a bit of money. Uh, and, and did that you put that well. across all asset class? Because no, it was just equity. at that point was more than equities. Yeah, look, uh, for me, I was I looked after the equity sleeve of Ausbill, um, and I should just go back a bit. Um, when we set up Ausbill, it was really ag- against uh, set up to manage all asset classes. So right. again, it was old school, um, perhaps uh, a bit silly in that regard. When on reflection, so we, we had a bond fund, we had a property fund, we had an international fund, we had a domestic in- income fund, we had a low volatile or, or an index fund. And we're trying to be all things to all people. Um, and we thought we had uh, a, a very strong skill base in tactical asset allocation. And again, you know, if managing- That's a, that's a hard job. That's a real hard <laughs> job. I mean, it's, it's one of the toughest, right? So we thought that we could make our name for ourselves in that regard, but also uh, operate in, in varying different specialty asset classes. So I, I introduced the process that I do operate at Ausbill, and I did operate at Legal and General and developed at Mercantile and General, and quietly went about um, managing equities money. And most of the money that we did actually win in the early days was equity money. So, so the high net worth was a uh, was equities. W- would you be brave enough to tell us what the quantum was at that stage? Uh, it was less than ten million dollars. That's a good start. It was less than ten million dollars. The second mandate we won was uh, from a reinsurance group, um, and that was about fifty million dollars. And that was um, equity and fixed income. So that was a, that was a real changer for you that was yeah that, that was really important for us um and again the relationship was from yesteryear as well um they were a, a previously a client of mine when i was at delphin aft built up a pretty good uh, relationship and those principles reset up an operation for another large organization here in australia and they came to us at the time and saying can you help us with the investment side and that worked well we then um a few months later um managed to uh, land about 30 million dollars in seed money from uh, bil and again, we-, we uh, So even though they were your partners, they were assessing you as a manager as well? Yeah, look, I mean, like all things, it takes a while to get up. And they wanted to make sure that it was all up and, uh, you know, up and running and making sure how we operated. So it took a little while. But they also committed to, as I said, operating a CCAV um, in Europe, which is a unitized, open-ended unitized fund, um, which is uh, selling Australian uh, equities mm-hmm. to, uh, to, their, to their bankers and also to uh, private bankers uh, in Europe. 
And that worked really well. So the combination of all that is that, you know, within 18 months, we'll break even, which is fantastic. Which is a very rapid compared to most business plans in funds management. But I always think you can never make in funds management, you can never make your third year your best year because you won't get to your third year if that's the case. So those first couple of years of managing money, how was the performance? Oh, the performance was pretty good um, overall. I mean, particularly on equities, I think we were building up a pretty good name and reputation um, under under Ausbill. And I think that's uh, why we did pretty well. I mean, I think that we didn't over, overly promote it. I didn't overly promote it. Um, I just wanted to go about it quietly. And I felt that, you know, you really had to get three years um, performance up under your belt in order for it to be recognised. And certainly that's what we did. Um, we also went through a bit of a restructure in year two or year three. Um, it became obvious that we shouldn't be all things to all people and really focus on one or two asset classes. And equities was one of those. Um, in fact, it was the centre. Um, so we recruited and, and got a few other people in to, to focus on that. And then we won a, a mandate in 2004, which was so a great mandate. seven years in? Yeah, seven years in. So it was a long time. It took a long time to, to really build up. Um, we won a major mandate, I should say, in, in 04. Uh, which really set the scene for us. And then we, um, you know, that was about $250 million uh, in early 04. And then by the end of 04, I think we're about $1.9 billion. So by this stage, you've trimmed the process down where you're just doing equities. That's the fun, well, mainly equities. The other partners that we mentioned before in the intro and people you'd work with, they had moved on by this stage? Yeah, so one of the one of the um, founding partners, Hammond Aurora, which introduced us to uh, BIL, ended up uh, working for BIL and uh, went to uh, London after about year three. We had a bit of a restructure in year three as well, trimming down the asset classes, um, doing away with international equities, doing away with um, property, um, and really just focusing on on bonds because we were managing bond money. Uh, and also a diversified product as well, which was uh, performing well, and just domestic equities. So, um, so a few years later, Winston Samet um, moved on. Um, Mike Wilson, and that was pretty tough. He he had to uh, he, he became a bit ill, unfortunately. So um, that was a pretty hard uh, time at the time, in the sense. Well, that was my next question. With with the changes, yeah. was it difficult? Yeah, it was. It was. Um, it was quite traumatic, really, um, because you know you're obviously working with people which and you uh, enter a business altogether with a lot of high hopes. Very much so. It was all, you know, one purpose and common gold and we all put in our risk money in and wanted to make it work. So that was pretty hard. But equally that we, you know, we did recognise that we had to make changes, otherwise the business would not necessarily grow and prosper. So there was some hard decisions that were made. And as it turned out, I think were the right decisions. Mike, as I said, you know, he was a bit ill, so uh, he retired early. But at the end, you know, I think that was the right thing. And he spent uh, his last year after he retired with his family, because he, he was very ill, in fact. And Rube Hayes uh, stepped back as well, uh, which is right. And Winston Summit went on to do his thing. And Here's me just holding the baby again. So back to yourself, and Rube went up way up north. I think he. Yeah, he did. He did sunning himself up around Cairns or Port Douglas or somewhere. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think he always had a plan of only being in the organisation for an eight-year stint, and that was in fact the case. So, um, so it was a there was a bit of planning that went into uh, him re- stepping down, and, and the asset class is changing. So and being very much focused on domestic equities, which were um, doing very well, um, and we expanded the team and also. You know, I stepped in the role of CEO in 2000. And John Grace came in at some stage around then? He came in 2003. Um, so Gracie and I worked together at Legal and General. Okay. So I, uh, so I hired him twice. Um, and he, he's been with you ever since. And he, yeah, he he's has. been a powerhouse in terms of performance and 
Yeah, no, he's, he's a great, support. great person, great number two, uh, great supporter uh, of us. Uh, you know, believed in the process. Um, you know, made all the difference. So um, we do often laugh that um, you know because we we're, we're just being requested to do so many different presentations, uh, and we're winning just about every one of them at one stage. So uh, I think in one year we did about twenty eight, and there was a couple that John Grace did on his own, and I did all the others. And I said we won twenty six out of twenty eight, Grace. He just remember <laughs> that. So uh, so the two that he won that he was on his own, he didn't quite win. I'm, but um, I'm sure he won't forget. <laughs> I remind him. Every now and again, but um, but but as but as far as a loyal and uh, and focused individual, a great person. Well, it's interesting running a business, working on the business, and raising the money and managing the money. It's it's a fine balance. It's not easy to achieve to to keep you know growing it, but the main time the same time performing. So just just before we go on to today's environment, yep, that that period was quite interesting. Ninety seven through to two thousand was the tech boom. News Corp became close to 20% of the index in Australia. There was a lot of fund managers who struggled under that scenario. Then we had the collapse of the tech sector and so on. How how did you manage through that? Because that that was setting up for your performance to win these bigger mandates later down the track as you're building a three and five-year performance track record. I mean, News Corp was interesting as you, I mean, at that stage, um, I think it did represent 15 or 16% of the the benchmark. So uh, every time we got new money in, you know, one of the first questions we asked, I mean, do we do we reweight with the money and and uh, maintain our position or should we do you know dilute our position? And for a couple of years, we just reweighted every time we got money in. It was the right thing to do. Um, and then the the tech you, boom, you went with its index. Yeah, weighting. we did. I mean, and a, we were sitting active and main, maintain an active position because it was on a roll at the time. Um, you know, the business was changing. Well, it was a bit of a conduit for our tech and telecom and media. Correct. That, that was what was running, and we didn't have a lot of that. But News Corp was very a much big, so. liquid position. Well, that's that was the you know the the um, the way to play that that uh, thematic and also that environment. But it was growing. I mean, the, the reason why we stuck with it was that they were, you know they did the business models was changing. If I recall correctly, the earnings were growing at at above that of market, and they kept on you know kept on uh, performing from that perspective. So our process was such where you know earnings keep on keep on increasing. We stay with it, uh, and we did. Uh, so that served us well. Um, but then you know we got into uh, into the tech end and and you know crazy business models, right, in the sense of, uh, and we've seen it ever, you know, we've seen it since, that they were selling a multiple, I've never come across businesses at the time which were selling multiples of revenue, not not multiples of earnings, because there was no earnings. I mean, it was incredible. Um, they were selling business plans at my end of the market. <laughs> oh, well, that's right. Um, and there were some absolute disasters, but equally that, you know, you know after, after the, uh, the correction in, in, 2000, in the early 2000s, there's been some great businesses which have really grown and been uh, and really are what, who we talk about today. And who, who would you include in that? Is it a realestate.com type of? Yeah, I mean realestate.com. I mean, geez, I, I remember that stock um, when it was offered to me at thirteen or fourteen cents. I remember someone said to us, uh, Roger Coleman, who you would have spoken to over the years. Oh, Roger yes. said it's worth four dollars, and we said, "Are you crazy?" Well, he was wrong, but he was wrong on the downside by a lot. <laughs> he was, um, and you're right. I think it was a bit crazy. I mean, he was right way out there, but really ahead of his time. And uh, a great analyst, and I always uh, listened to him. So uh, and and try to understand where he was coming from because you couldn't always couldn't always be, follow be, him. You couldn't really follow him because he was always two or three steps ahead of everyone else. But he saw the bigger picture, uh, which made you think. But um, but certainly that was the case. So let's fast forward to today. Uh, your core fund is is I'm guessing, but probably half or more more than half of your strategy is the, the as we mentioned, fifteen sixteen billion dollars, depending where the market is at any given time. How do you put it together? That portfolio that we talked about before. 50 stocks or do you stick to a close index and you own everything? How, how does it work at Ausbill? No, we've always run a, a fairly concentrated portfolio. Um, so the maximum number of stocks we hold is 40. 
minimum 30, but typically 33 in the, in the, in the core portfolio. We also have a concentrated fund, which is even a little bit more concentrated, maximum of 30, minimum 20, maximum uh, typically you know, 20 out of thereabouts. But it really is our process. I mean, uh, that, um, that has been followed from day one. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer that uh, the investment environment that you're in- entering into is always going to be dictated by, by the bigger picture, economics, clearly. Um, so you always have an overlay? Always have an overlay. So that was all, we, you know, we're one of the few uh, houses which have a, an, an economist working for us. And we listen to him as well, which is, a, which is also <laughs> a bit of a difference as well. But the thing is looking, you know, looking at the bigger picture, under, trying to understand what the direction of economic activity will be, you know, going forward is something that we, we start with and also other influences of the market. So the bigger picture is something that we start with. We debate it internally. That's always been the case. Uh, come up with a set of conclusions. We don't try to come up with to the exact decimal point of where we think GDP growth will be over the next 12 months or, or underlying economic growth will be globally. It's more about the, the change that is likely to occur and what that means for companies and what that means for earnings. So we do come up with a set of conclusions, which you know we have a view on global growth, domestic growth, interest rates, currency, and all those conclusions, and then apply to each sector. So when we're looking at all the markets, so there's a top-down element there. Top-down, very much so. That's we. That's where we start. So we are a top-down, bottom-up, and we also do apply those conclusions to each sector. But really, you know, what really makes the money for us is obviously the bottom-up analysis that we do um, and on the individual companies. On the individual that companies, fit into that strategy. Or, or that macro view. Yeah, I mean, it, you, you tend. To, we have found that over the years that around twenty five percent of our alpha generation comes from our top down conclusions and seventy five from our bottom up stock selection. But really, they are interrelated. Mm. I mean, if you get the sectors right, you tend to get the stocks right, and vice versa. Um, but it's just the framework that we look at. You know, we look at things, and we are quite disciplined. And it really is trying to identify at a very early stage where the earnings risk may be, or where the earnings opportunities may be. And as I, you know, our catch cry, as we said, is earnings and earnings of visions are the key driver of share prices. So, you know, that's, that's our start point. And then, you know, our team, you know, very much builds up uh, their own um, investment thesis, you know, using those same conclusions, but also the bottom up um, analysis they do in rebuilding models. And then we compare that to market and see where the differences are. And then we try to explore the, explore the inefficiencies in the market. You know, we are very disciplined. I mean, you know, we- Well, we, it's, it's been a, a, an incredibly successful, uh, quoted earlier, that your outperformance over a quarter of a century, which is hard, a, lot, a lot of studies will say, long-handed guys can't do this, active managers can't do it, but you're bucked the trend. Yep. And so you obviously believe that managers can add value. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're living proof of it. So, um, you know, if you're disciplined and actually follow a process and you believe in it and stick to it, you can actually add value. And that's what we have done. We've done it year in, year out. But it's not just our broad-based equities portfolio. It's all the portfolios that we have actually launched. So, you know, our small cap, our micro cap, our long short, our income fund, you know, it's all serviced by the same team, same process, but there's obviously different requirements and what you want to achieve for the particular client, um, particular portfolios, but it's the same process. So if you the are disciplined, and it works. Yep. And I think that's real value that we add to our clients. Um, you know, index funds uh, have grown over the years, as we know, but they're not driven on on fundamental analysis. It's all, it's all mathematical. And I do remember when I was at uh, going back to Barclays days when, when there was that reverse takeover effectively, you know, I was known as a portfolio manager. But the guys from um, from Wells Fargo were known as portfolio engineers, <laughs> so um, so it had nothing to do with um, you know, completely impressive. completely different structure. But I think that you know fundamental analysis and understanding and having a process is key to success. 
Interesting, just get to where we are today and what, what the future holds for Ausbill. You've outlasted, if you want to use that term, there's the Peter Morgan, there's the Greg Perry, there's the Greg Matthews, all these guys, Rowan Headley, that you've seen over the years and been competitors against, you've stayed the course. So it's quite a remarkable achievement. What's the future for Ausbill and your future? It's a hard game. It grinds you day to day. The market never leaves you. It haunts you. Oh, look, it, and, and never does, as you're right. So you, you've got to be a, a market animal, which I am, um, and really focus on what you want to do. I just love it. You know, it, it's a new challenge every day. That's what excites me. That's what brings me into, into the office every day. I'm on the tools every day. I'm on the first in every day. So I don't stop in that regard, but it really drives me. Um, I think that the success of Ausbill is that, and why it's going to be successful in the future, you know, I've built up a team which ha- are like-minded. You know, they are very much driven in what we do. They are, you know, they are in early. They actually are focused on on delivering the right outcome um, and really are performance driven. So we have built up a really, really strong team within Ausbill, which are going to be the future leaders. I'm not stepping away anytime soon, but but there is a great depth great, in Ausbill. Great succession. And also great a number depth. of different products as well. Well, it sounds like that possibly we, we might be able to sit here again on the 30th or 35th birthday. Oh, I think that's a very you good might, You might be saying the same thing. So... Um, I'm going to say happy birthday. Well done on a terrific uh, career and a terrific um, outcome at Ausbill. And thanks for talking to us today. We've learned a lot. Thank you very much and really enjoyed it. Thank you.